Welcome to Mintenburn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Navin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Dr. Thomas Hardono from MIT, alongside distinguished professor Jason Potts from RMIT, uh, to speak about the new economy. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thank, thank you, Kelsey. A real privilege uh, to have you with us today, um, Dr. Hardono. And uh, one thing which uh, Jason and I have been discussing is uh, your new book, Building the New Economy, Data as Capital. Uh, so it'd be wonderful, I guess, just to kick off to hear a little bit of context around your kind of thinking and aims for this publication. Uh, sure, sure. So thank you again for the invitation. And you can just call me Thomas. You know, we, we don't use titles at, you know, MIT. <laughs> uh, too, too, too many Nobel Prize laureates. So, you know, it gets... It gets tiring, uh, uh, but the 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 book is really um, perhaps a combination um, of maybe about five years, seven years work of our group. So a bit of background might might help. I belong to a group called Connection Science and Engineering, uh, and uh, the focus uh, is uh, how uh, society deals with technology with data, and in particular, how how does Technology affect um, you know human behavior individually and in communities, and uh, we do a lot of research uh, I- I into this area. and And often, research you have to be objective. Uh, providing you know data, using data, real data, kind of helps you know uh, provide a basis for some of our theories, hypotheses, and so on. And and every now and again, we do uh, you know what we call like like a brain dump. So everyone's got lots of papers everywhere and so and you know uh we this is i think our third book in the series or second third book in the series so every three years to four years we say oh, let's let's collect you know what we have papers and so on and and invite uh, particular authors uh, and researchers academics and industry uh, people to write something and contribute to to a book and and this is kind of the the uh the result of it and it was just i guess timely we had the whole covid lockdown because this project was supposed to be something that stretched you know 18 months and we kind of had the first drop in six months so was it 2020 by the yeah so and then as you guys know the the process of publication um you know takes a long time mit mit press is a is an excellent uh, publisher in the sense that they um, go through everything, the footnotes, every link, you know, every URL to make sure it's there. So it's so, so the purpose is really just to to do a, a report out to the world that this is what what sort of the state of our thinking uh, is. Yeah, and there's so many interesting components that uh, I'm sure we'll be able to explore in the time that we have. Um, one kind of epistemic question I wanted to ask, um, and really it comes out of um, uh, both Jason and my position as part of the uh, Center of Excellence in Automated Decision-Making and Society here um, in Australia as, as part of the RMIT um, sort of campus for that. Uh, what do you think is the appropriate role of AI in civic and government systems? Jason, do you want to take that or should I take that? 
I'd love to hear your take on that one. I mean, I think just the, the, the broader framing of it, just to sort of, I mean, just to, to come back at that question, Kelsey, is, is I mean, you, you, you're a sort of computer, you're a computer scientist, right? And, and you, you've, you've, you're, you're, the areas that you've been working on you know, through your career around sort of systems architecture and, and um, building up towards data science and then, but this, this trajectory of seeing um, computer systems and computer architectures and so cybersecurity architectures and principles just become deeper and deeper and more fundamental parts of the economy, I think is, is the thing that I was just really struck by just, just, you know, yeah. going through the, the progression of, of your work and so on. And, you know, what the, you know, what, what's what's incredible about what, what you've done here is that you've got a this perspective, you know, and, and along with your colleagues, of bringing this sort of deep engineering computer science perspective onto this question of how do we build a modern economy, and um, you know, really leaning into you know, the design of money and the design of identity systems and property rights and, and so on and so on, and I think that um, you know, if I can just sort of reinterpret your question a bit there, Kelsey, is, is, is that sure. what's sort of striking about this? And you know, again, I, I like the sort of MIT take on this of, you know, the engineers will, will, um, will, will, will build all of the useful infrastructure that we need to do the things. And you know, once upon a time, it was economists used to, we used to believe that, you know, that would be the thing that we could help with. And digital economies are engineered complex systems fundamentally and with every passing day they become more so so i guess that's the question i'm sort of interested in is um where do you see the boundaries then now or or or, or, or how do you sort of conceptualize this notion of um systems architecture and design where we've got sort of computer science and cybersecurity and so on um these technical capabilities these compute architectures and then at some point it becomes money, economies, property rights systems, ledgers, and so on. Um, how do you sort of sure. see that space? That... Yeah, that's a, <laughs> so it's probably worthwhile mentioning in the MIT mission statement, there's, there's a line that goes something like, we, we solve you know, humanity's, uh, what is it, uh, difficult problems, right? So, uh, so it's it's kind of interesting to have that kind of an outlook in an engineering school, but but I think um, I'm trying to think. Uh, so so one of the the key ideas, uh, you know, that's been bouncing around in this connection science group basically since the last financial crash was well, you know, how is it that in this modern digital economy we don't have the necessary technical capabilities to forecast provide a forecast or or trend analysis for a financial crash right so so remember back in 2008 2009 the whole the whole planet was you know we had i think i think it's called the gsc in 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 australia and so so that kind of you know provided uh, us with sort of you know a a, a direction and <clears throat> this kind of you know answers the question that that um, uh, eventually the whole uh, you know economy is going to be digitized somehow, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there's this this data there that's going to be produced directly or a byproduct, and and what kind of algorithms and what kinds of data could we use to provide you know better predictions, forecasts of 
uh, future economic uh, outlooks and, and impact. And <clears throat> although we can think about this at a you know city level, uh, at a, a nation level, but at at a global scale, this is also a pertinent question because when when we have things go wrong, uh, you know we have millions of people you know go go starving. I mean literally, right? So so so. Uh, what's what's the boundary so this is this is this is the the, the perpetual you know uh, question i think um the, the the first thing is i think just uh, first of all identifying that the ai is a great label it's like blockchain you know now web3 ai it is two letters a is a great label but essentially underneath ai you have a set of algorithms and, and data sets right and so uh the question is uh this, this is a societal question. Who has access to all this data? Uh, who owns, quote, who legally owns this data? Who crafts the algorithms? Can the algorithms be biased? So, 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 so part of our, we had an excellent PhD student a couple of years ago that, um, you know, was, was looking at the, the problem of, you know, so biasing data, yes, we all know, you know, so data always has bias. And that's why we have all this, you know, cleaning process and so on. But, but that algorithms themselves could have inbuilt bias. Right, so so this has impact on individuals and on society. So, easy one that everybody understands is, is credit scoring. So, in the United States, uh, the economic, I guess, opportunities, livelihood, and so on, of an individual <clears throat> is almost gated by this so-called credit score. So, it's a score between I think, whatever, a hundred and and uh, you know, a, a thousand. And if you want to get a car loan, a mortgage, there's a, there's almost a, a cutoff. You know, if you, if you're under 500, go home, <laughs> you're, you're not going to get, and if your credit is, you know, 800, you're excellent. Right. But you think, well, who came up with that idea? And so, so in, in today, um, in the financial industries, the three companies that, that provide this, this is uh, the, the three, what is called credit bureaus uh, in the United States. And they obtain data from, Banks. So in the United States, when you open a bank account, there's this nice uh, leaflet you get with fine print of size six font that you cannot read without a magnifying glass. And somewhere in there, there's a statement saying that, well, you know, banks are, are permitted to give, you know, your credit card data, your spending data, particularly credit card data to these credit bureaus. And you think, well, it, it kind of makes sense because the financial industry itself needs its it's it, it, it's an ecosystem and in order for one part to function it needs access to information about you know providers but but um you know going forward this whole ai question is going to be um sort of more relevant because now people are looking at things like health data right and so in the united states you know if, if the same principles, you know, for credit scoring was applied to health data, it could be that half the population may, may not be eligible for health insurance, right? Bear in mind, you know, unlike Australia, the United States does not have this sort of blanket, you know, uh, available uh, coverage for, you know, all, all residents, all citizens, right? It's, 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 you still have to, like, basically purchase insurance from the market. I don't know if that kind of, you know, uh, answers the the, the question, you know, Jason and, and Kelsey. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'd like to sort of dig into a little bit further on just your thoughts. I mean, you, with you and, and your colleague, um, Sandy Pentland, you've, you've, you've been de developing this idea, which I think makes a lot, I mean, it's, it's, it's intuitive, but not widely understood or not uh, appreciated for the full significance of it, of the idea of data as capital. 
of this idea of a, of a, of a shared capital that it's that it's one of these sort of assets that is um, relatively low value. Just a, it's a privacy risk. It's a cost individually, but when it's pooled and shared and and used, and and particularly this this idea that that you have of the sort of compute on site, where you don't you, we don't sort of sell data and so on. We 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 create data pools that are then you know governed in a trust situation or, you know, we, we have, we have ways of, 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 of collectively, collectively owning that or collectively governing that, but the algorithms, they come into it and then they do their thing and then they, they go out and so on. But it's that model of, of, uh, I mean, I, I sort of think of that as a commons, that it's a, it's a common pool resource that's, that's yes, been created yes, yes. Um, but particularly the connection then to the, the compute resources and algorithms and so on as a sort of a service that comes into it. And that just, I think it's striking that vision of this you know, incredibly valuable new, you know, in a digital economy, data is a, is a, is a fundamentally important growing resource that is, that is created, is created by everyone or, and everything. Um, and, but it's, it's a classic sort of market failure situation where, existing markets just simply because property rights systems don't work and there's privacy hazards and so on and and just all of the sort of classic market situations tend to fail on this increasingly valuable resource and therefore this this notion of um this thing right at the center of a digital economy which is the the economy that that we're transitioning into um we need to fundamentally reimagine um or, or sort of create new types of institutions for the governance and use of that fundamental resource. So I was, I mean, I'm sorry, I was very struck by this, this the clarity of, of the vision that you presented there. So ha, have I represented that correctly? Or, no, no, it's correct. So, so let me roll back. So this is, yeah. this is the idea of a, a data co-op, right? So, so, so I'm going to use a very sort of um, easy for the audience, particularly to understand, you know, this, this, you know, data data situation. So so right now, I you know everybody's got a mobile phone, and there's a you know mobile carrier. You know, in the United States, it could be AT and T and so on, Verizon. So 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 in in using that service, I generate in in carrying this device, I generate data about myself, including mobility data, call data records, and so on. Right. And aside, put aside the question for the moment of, of who legally owns that data. Is it the, the carrier is it mobile telephone car- carrier or myself or maybe it's both of us right but let's say let's say you know I was allowed I was permitted to download my own data whether it's call data records uh, GPS location tracking uh, health data the, the question then becomes if it's just uh, my own data for myself, it's, it's kind of not interesting because you, <laughs> you can't do analytics right it doesn't help my community. The, the, the interesting um, sort of a possibility is that if you pull together data in a community in a meaningful way that's relevant for that community to answer the challenges of that community, it becomes useful. The fact that, that I have a copy, yes, the carrier still has a copy, but I have a copy and I can share it with my community. And so what is the social structure around that construct and we looked around and looked around and you know we we thought well you know this the farmer's market is is a is a great model right so the the what, what is called a sort of farmer's co-op so in the united states here there's a history of, i think the same in australia that you know in the in the you know 100 years ago the farmers had to band together to form a co-op 
for, for many reasons, you know, um, yeah, you know, de-risking, you know, some, you know, you know, plantation investments, uh, sharing transportation costs, you know, sharing uh, warehousing costs. But essentially, there is that structure, and and the co-op, you know, in in the consumers uh, sort of perspective, the co-op is probably represented in the United States by farmers market. So every town here in in in, in Boston has a, a farmers market at least once a month. You know, it's the, and the, and the the farmers come directly to to the consumer. But so. That's the that's the first model the 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 the, the uh, data co-op, farmers co-op. How do you pool resources together? The second example that, that we looked at, and we we interviewed a number of these uh, institutions, is uh, is a credit union. So in the United States, a credit union is um, slightly different than than a bank. And if you go enter a credit union, you're not a customer; you are a member, which is kind of very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, perspective on this, and 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 we, uh, you know, we we went and talked to a number of these. One of one of the ones nearby is in Vermont. So the Vermont Credit Union is probably one of the largest in New England. It had sixty thousand members, right? And what they do is they negotiate better rates, you know, interest rates for credit cards, for home loan mortgages, and so on. So you would actually get a mortgage. You could get a mortgage or a car loan. From a credit union, <clears throat> so so why why is it different than a bank, and and what's so similar between a data uh, farmers co-op and a um, and a credit union, and and it's the idea that individuals have control over their data and they have the freedom to pool together, as you said, right? And so the idea then, well, uh, take a real example. We, we were looking at this, you know, maybe three or four years ago. So um, if you look at um, uh, the example of um, I, I won't name brands here. The 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 car was it the car ride sharing thing that everybody has on their on their app, you know. Um, so so a driver in the north of Boston and the driver in the south of Boston they have no idea if they're getting the same rates per mile, right? So so um, you know how how do you um, how, how do you um, uh, allow these two drivers to at least compare rates. So maybe I'm getting a dollar fifty, you know, a mile, and maybe I'm getting a dollar, you know, thirty a mile. And so, if they could pull together their data, assuming the driver could get access to just a copy, just a copy of the same data that the the company ride sharing company has, they could pull together and and you know, of course, you know, hire the you know relevant uh, data analysts and do do simple analytics right just comparing comparing prices so that's one case second case is is the same thing applies to gig workers and this is probably going to be you know very relevant for the future economy because you know gig, gig workers in the united states um you know um, gig workers means people like you know people who clean hotel rooms you know uh, nurses nurses are, you know a lot of nurses work you know at two or three hospitals, and essentially, essentially, it's a gig. So, how can you use that kind of data to to understand, you know, trends and you know when's going to be a busy time for the hotel industry, you know, what's going to be a busy time for the for the health industry? But but that's that's kind of you know the idea of 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 pooling pooling the data, and and we can talk about what IT infrastructure would be needed for that to happen. Yeah. So part of the reason this conversation is so interesting is because we have a 
engineer, a social scientist, um, sociologist, I guess, and an economist. Um, so we're looking at, at one thing from multiple sides, which is, I think, the right way to do it in such um, interdisciplinary fields as um, blockchain or uh, the, the broader topic of building the new economy. Um, this idea of governance models that work alongside or in parallel or around um, technological infrastructure is something um that I'm really fascinated by a whole uh, case study of my PhD has been on IPFS and and how people use that and how they kind of um, roll their own infrastructure and their own governance in a kind of bespoke way. Um, another whole section of work that we've been doing um, in and through the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub is uh, based off this idea of DAOs as data trusts and looking at the data itself and then, you know, decentralized governance models and, you know, using DAO as a very broad organizational form, this idea of a decentralized autonomous organization, but, you know, one that can be modeled on a commons or a data union or a trust kind of structure, but, you know, kind of potentially enforcing some kind of, um, rule through uh, through algorithms rather than through the traditional rule of law. Um, so I just wanted to jump in, I guess, with some of that broader framing. Um, Jason, did you want to further pursue that idea of um, cooperative governance models and data markets? Yeah, no, no, I, was, I was just curious to hear your thoughts, Thomas, on the um, this relationship between a co-op or a trust, which which is a sort of a very much a you know off chain human in the loop. There's a there's a trustee. It's who's that's a person or, or a committee, um, but it's it's the sort of Eleanor Ostrom um, town hall type sort of small group of people communicating, reasoning, you know, persuading each other, and that's a, that's that's the sort of the origin of governance. The challenge with that one is it it it's it's difficult to scale, um, but it's. But this this notion of of how far can we push that 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 sort of co-op trustee model, um, and at what point does it tip over into the you know, the DAO model where it's on chain, it's tokenized voting, it's 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 um, quasi autonomous, it, or um, it's it's you know it's it's which the promise is that that one can scale better. Um, and it's, you know, this is an empirical question. It may or it may not. I've been involved with ones that have scaled horribly as they've tried to do that. Um, but that, that sort of question of um, how, do we, how, do we, how do we go from small... Because, I mean, the, the thing about co-op... I mean, I'm, I'm completely convinced that the, the co-op um, commons-type model, it, this is the future of... this is. 21st century economies are going to be built around co-op type institutions in the same way that 20th century economies were built around corporate you know, hierarchies and, and, and so on. Um, just because we can, this is a this is a far more sort of um, a, a model that sort of you know the, the you know the previous millennia was was just filled with co-ops and civil societies and small groups of people banding together to pool resources to do things. And it was, you know, there were some nice aspects of that, particularly equality. It was very egalitarian and, and flat. It was people were all members and owners, and and it wasn't it wasn't sort of producers and consumers. It was um, citizens all on, on on relatively equal terms coming together to do things. And you know, there's a there's a lot of reason that that works well with the grain of 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 of, um, of you know of human culture. Um, but 
the question is, is how far can we push governance automation or on-chain, you know, right, like right. <laughs> with DAOs? Like just, just what is your sense of that? I, I know you've thought yeah, about that. that. So, so I, I, we get, I get this all the time, particularly students in MIT, like we want to do a DAO to, you know, raise, uh, you know, funding via crypto cookies for the Boston Marathon. Yay. Okay. <laughs> we get that all the time. And so what I usually say uh, is, well, you know, first of all, um, if you want to create a co-op, a community that shares, you know, resources, write down the rules of engagement and rules of behavior, the governance on a piece of paper first, before you write any code, you know, on, on Ethereum to do that. So, so all of the members must understand, you know, that, uh, because at the end of the day, it's about human beings. It's about societies, about communities. It's not about technology. The technology serves, you know, human beings and communities and societies. And so, so write, write the rules down and then, and then implement it in, in a DAO and see if it works, if everybody's happy. Right. And so, um, to answer that specific, you know, question, what's the limit to scaling? So, so in many ways, I think, in in many of the literature and discussions I've read, uh, DAOs are treated as like a general purpose, uh, you know, a digital substitute of a human organization that has a degree of automation. I, I tend to think just just like human beings interact in uh, communities based on interest. DAOs need to be specific, more specific, tailored to specific maybe industries, verticals, and even subsectors. So a good a good example that 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 we had here in our group. So so we're uh, our group was one of the the founding members of the Open Music Initiative o- OMI uh, with our partner the the Berkeley College of Music. So Berkeley is literally across the river, you know, uh, not even half a kilometer away from the MIT campus, and so. They were very interested in understanding how blockchain technologies and DAOs could help their students because for, for the for the audience who who are familiar with the music industry, uh, it, it, it's a difficult life if you want to be a musician because right now the way the whole legal infrastructure, at least in the United States, is is configured, it favors basically the labels. It it favors the 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 entities down the supply chain. So the, the I keep saying the creative engine for the music industry are these young artists and musicians. And how is it that they don't, they can't make a living, you know? And so the idea there would be, you know, if um, if they could get together and, and, and as, a, as a co-op of, of some kind and have a DAO so that, you know, uh, if, if a, if a, if a film director in Europe is looking for a piece of music for his or her film, and searches through a catalog and finds something that that she likes, she could just automatically, you know, purchase that license that piece of music from this community DAO that's that's basically belonging to artists and musicians. So how many artists and musicians can can it grow? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Is it is it a hundred? Is it you know ten thousand? Is it fifty thousand? I think this is one of the technical challenges for for DAO DAOs. At what point does it you know, become self-defeating. That that maybe, maybe just maybe that that there is a, a limit to the degree of of interaction because human beings are. I mean, I live in a community, right? This little town where I am, and and I know the people here. I can go to any post office, any bank I want, but I go to that one. Yeah, you know, it's you know, it's a bit of a hassle because it's a small branch, but I know the people there. They know me and my you know. So so same thing, and maybe maybe just maybe that 
that you could use data from you know the social graph and just understand you know make DAOs from connections that, that weighty connections people people who you know and interact daily versus somebody you've never seen before <laughs> on online somebody that's really not part of your your sort of immediate community yeah that's a, a far more sort of organic version of how an economy how the administrative organizational structure of an economy can emerge from I think it's stigmergy is the frame the term for that where you have this emergent structure based upon repeated interactions. Yeah, and there's some interesting uh, research or, or public talks at least that I'll link in the show notes about uh, DAOs and contribution graphs, which kind of starts to look at those ideas of um, social graphs and um, and weightings and also kind of uh, what is value in these kinds of communities. Um, Thomas, something else that's um, very heavily emphasised in your work is privacy. And we've kind of talked about this idea of the digital economy and kind of um, uh, data markets, um, automation and governance. Uh, How do you think about privacy in the context of building the new economy? Uh, So so consistent with with the vision of the view that, that data is capital, um, a, a personal data is not just, you know, data that has no meaning. Uh, its usage could have impact on an individual. So there's this credit rating thing, credit score thing is a is a is a very pertinent, you know, example of this. But but d- data privacy means to, to me that that really individuals should have control over who has access to their PII data. Right? So there's Let's distinguish this that there's, there's aggregate data and there's PII, PII, personally identifiable, identifying information. Something's very personal, you know. So uh, in, in our research, particularly when we're dealing with, um, you know, corporate customers, governments, uh, communities, we always look at aggregate data. We never we never ask for individual data. In fact, for our research work, the individual individual data doesn't help. We, we tend to look at blocks of units, you know, of... of uh, uh, anonymize, you know, units of a thousand persons, and so, and we're interested in really the aggregate uh, of that. But so, so, so that that kind of view in our in our research uh, led to this uh, set of principles, which we call the open algorithms principles, OPAL, and 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 you know, the goal of OPAL was to somehow implement a previous vision this is a this is from the 2011 world economic forum report that the title is you know personal data is a new asset class and it if you it's it's free to download read it and <laughs> it is basically the bad news you know data is you know is highly fragmented users don't see any benefits from their own data and so 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 privacy comes together with ownership of um of data of of um you know personal data and so uh, the challenge for a society business and government is how can you use uh personal data for the benefit of community and society whilst maintaining privacy right because it's it's clear i mean corporations need need data to run Right. I mean, just the the whole banking big one in banking industry and credit score. They need people need credit scoring. Why? Well, because the the other side, the 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 bank is is taking on a risk by giving me a home loan, and they want to be able to manage that risk. So they need some kind of an indication or some kind of a reputation metric 
for me and and reputation metric you know is is computed amongst others other things from my personal behavior data in this case my my spending data you know how faithful am i in in repaying my credit card you know um you know bill every month right that's a good indicator uh, another one that that's a that's a good indicator of financial uh, stress is actually, you know, mobility data, but we can, we can talk about that, you know, uh, later on. So, so yes, uh, governments need access to individual data. Town cities need access and, and, and corporations need, you know, because the private sector is, is a, is a core part of the economy, right? So, so they need the function. So the challenge is how, how do you sort of work with them so that, you know, they get access, you know, usage to, of, of personal data. And so the idea, you know, Jason, of a, of a co-op also comes into play that, that um, you know, maybe the mechanism to provide the container for the protection of the PII is, in fact, the data co-op, but in such a way that maybe a, a financial institution can provide questions. So in the OPAL principle, data stays where it is, it's the algorithms. It's the, the the questions that go to the data. So, for example, if if um, you know uh, government likes to know, this is a good one. The, the COVID sort of mobility thing, right? So, so you know, instead of having direct you know access to my mobility pattern, you know, maybe the government could ask, you know, via the right APIs, ask a set of questions to the pool of data that belongs to the data co-op, right? So, the, so, so. It's it's a joint, you know, use, you know, because if I, if I just lock lock up my personal data in a vault, well, that doesn't help anyone either. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help my community. It doesn't help uh, society in times of crisis such as such as COVID. Yeah, it's 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 interesting the way you frame that because I think what we've had is sort of two hundred years of an industrial economy that has also had a very you know commoditized economy where they a lot of the way we we produced and, and grew wealth was by specializing in capital equipment and producing the same things over and over again at an ever greater scale. And what you see very clearly, as you pointed out in the music industry, for, or just the creative industries in general, is everyone is producing something unique all the time. That's the whole point, is, is that it's, and which is why there's so much metadata, which you produce music and you produce a huge amount of data. And every time you produce something that, that needs to be there. And which is sort of why the industrial model of record keeping standardizing product and so on just has always been so horrible for that industry for that whole industry but just more and more of the economy looks like that where, where we've got specialized unique production that is um you know where you've got uh, in the music industry for instance this this challenge of just keeping track of all of the who did what when and what was it done there and and so on in order for licensing and payments and attribution and so on but that's also true of science in general just or just any sort of situation where you're you know teams of people are coming together to produce unique objects or unique things or discover things and that sort of model of production that's you know which is very much the opposite of a factory product factory commoditized production model is incredibly data intensive on the input side and the output side it both uses information and data and it produces information and data and that's you know um that's we're just at the beginning, you know, that's going to continue. That's going to get, we're going to, that the complexity is going to continue to increase. And, you know, what, what you've, what you described there was this, this notion of more and more production looking more and more like search that I, I query a data pool 
And you know, the right. sort of well, we've had the sort of first generation of of you know, search engines as a you know you know find me some information out there that I know exists, but that is increasingly the model of the frontiers of medical research of just you know querying chemical databases um, or que- you know just more and more using this model of you know um, you know machine algorithmic driven investigation, discovery, search of these enormous resources of, of, of data. And, and, and that data can be of all sorts of things, right? And, and the, the, the bigger and more diverse it is, the better. But this, this interesting notion of, you know, who owns it? How do we govern it? Where is it? Um, is like these are, this, this, this description of, you know, why is a digital economy fundamentally different to an industrial economy is starting to become really apparent in these, these types of production methods. But, um, so, I mean, so, I mean, I've been really enjoying reading your book with, with your, with your other colleagues that, that you've presented there, but just what's striking about it is this you know, really practical notion of, we're seeing this in the medical research and the health yep. Sector. We're seeing it in the you know, service industries. We're seeing it in the gig economy. We're seeing it in the creative industries and the music industries, and so on and so on. Like it's it, it is everywhere already. And this notion that it's we need to have a sort of almost top to bottom fundamental reengineering of the arch- the the administrative institutional rules and and and. Um, and, and infrastructure that we we have, I think, is no, that, that that notion really comes across. Um, I mean, and, and and let me actually yeah. add, you know, this yeah. is where the DAO is coming, right? So, yeah. so, you know, imagine a you know a data co-op, and and you know, you know, fifty thousand members of a particular sector of the economy, uh, and they have their own DAO, and if uh, you know. A car manufacturer wants, you know, basic uh, information for marketing purposes, right? So, so they want to they want to know out of fifty thousand members, you know, what's the age group, what's the income bracket, you know, because then the the, the car manufacturer needs to um, sort of tailor the product for that particular market segment. Just that example. So, so the the manufacturer could use the DAO, could send a message and a payment. To the DAO and and the DAO machinery, the blockchain machinery can query um, you know data that's essentially off chain. So so all this private data needs to be off chain. It cannot cannot be the, a blockchain is not it's not a database. And and the last thing you want is to see is, is a blockchain becomes like a silo that pulls in all the data. The data is off chain, right? But but the blockchain and the DAO becomes a coordinating point that tracks transactions, payments, who access what data. Which algorithm? So now we're talking about algorithms. We're not, you know, so so the DAO could have a menu of fifty questions that that uh, with pricing, you know, fifty questions you can ask of this uh, data co-op. For example, you know, what's the what's the average age group? What's the income bracket? Uh, you know, distribution. Um, you know, what is um, what, what? How much gasoline? You know, do they spend? You know, on average. So these these are all average. Question in, in in most cases, particularly for the function of society, um, I, you know, aggregate information is is already enough, right? The the, the car manufacturer doesn't want to know individual; they want to know trends, right? And so the DAO could sit, you know, in the middle between the querier side, people interested in insights. We, we use the word insights, 
uh, and on on the other side is the is the data co-op and and the data store, whatever IT machinery that they use for the data store, right? So so, you know, um, you know, you know, Kelsey, we're also excited about about DAOs because, you know, this could be the the mechanism to allow the the proper functioning and governance of a human data co-op, you know, for a particular purpose. Yeah, and I think that's really uh, a really important emphasis in the framing of you know your definition of DAO. Um, I I still say most broadly a group of people with a shared aim, uh, and then however that is expressed and the role of blockchain and automation and all these things are kind of um, that's right, that's right. And and it also plays you know we, we didn't speak about digital identity, but but this is you know so so yes the you know here's. Is Vitalik, you know, writing about soulbound tokens? Great, Vitalik, you're, you're sort of a bit a bit late to the game. Let's just say um, five years before this, there was a whole, you know, movement called you know self sovereign identity (SSI). Needless to say, and, and you know, we, we we wrote a piece in the in the Wall Street Journal that that made us slightly unpopular in the SSI community because we kind of said, look, you know, the notion of a self sovereign identity is kind of inaccurate. The, the more accurate is is self sovereign uh, community, and why is that? Well, because I, I, the, what's valuable about digital identity is not the identifier string, you know, like my Gmail address or whatever identifies identifier string. It's it's the set of attributes that um, come that are associated with that string, right? And so, you guys who are technical here in the audience might know what a DID is. This is a W three C standard. Uh, that basically tries to bind this identifier string with my public key, with a URL, put it points to something and put that on a blockchain. But the key thing is that the attributes are still computed or derived from my personal data. My credit score that's associated, whatever form you represent my credit score, whether it's in a DID, whether it's in soulbound token as a, as a you know, non-sellable you know, NFT, that's great. <laughs> But the real crunch is still off-chain. Where's whose whose data are you computing my history on? Who who has control over the data, and so on and so on. So 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 I think I think you know it's it's digital identity. We've been using the word personas for each sector of my life, with it social, work, hobbies. There's this thing called a persona, which which we refer in probably in our previous book on on data and trust, data trust. Um, and these personas represent uh, attributes that are computed on data that I control, uh, and it's accurate. It's not me making up data. Because the the, the thing with self-sovereign pronouncements of attributes is that anyone can proclaim anything. I can say, oh, I've got a PhD from you know from X university, and there's you know there's no way to verify that unless the university sort of comes into play. Right. So so yeah. So so. To the data co-op model, then you're able to compute interesting attributes about the members. So a member of the co-op might say, you know, I want to bind my identify my Gmail address with this attribute, uh, and an attribute could be, you know, um, you know, um, my my uh, hobby in you know how, how many how many music pieces, you know, do I have? You know, what what's what's my you know, was it the um, activity score in terms of generating new music, right? So, so, so anything, anything could be computed, but we still need to address the problem of 
of personal data and access to personal data in the context of, of binding that in an attribute to an identifier string. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Okay, that makes sense. There's, um, this, there's this three-step yeah, yeah. three thing that needs to happen. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you, I mean, you've been involved a lot throughout your career as well in, in um, stand, forming standards, working on um, IEEE and so on, and, and various organizations. Help us understand what the role of standards is right now in the, in the Web3 blockchain space, yes, particularly yes. in the relation to, to, open, to, um, to ensuring that we have open access and open standards here. This, yes. this seems to be one of these things that um, I'm worried it's not well understood enough. Sure. So, so, so standards. Let me look at it from a from a business perspective. Whether you're a startup or you're a big company, standards has has very important technical standards has very an, a very important role in basically providing interoperability between systems. Now, why why is that important? Well, because if you are a software vendor, a uh, hardware vendor, you would like to implement the standard once so that you can interact with as many parties as possible. And why is that important? Because it reduces cost. Now, what we're seeing right now, particularly for those who are in the blockchain space, uh, is that there are so many blockchain networks out there. You know, there's a, there's a paper coming out that, that we did um, with some folks in, in Portugal um, that basically scans through like 80 different blockchain networks. And, and it's very clear that, that um, there's, there's, there's bilateral you know, efforts to do interop, but there's no global sort of standard to do interoperability. And so I, I explained to the students, you know, at MIT that the reason why the internet works beautifully and you can use Zoom, you can use Netflix and so on is because there's this solid set of technical standards underlying the whole Web2 infrastructure. So TCP/IP uh, is is um, is a, is an RFC. So the word the, the term RFC came from a group called the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is probably one of the oldest uh, open standards volunteer organizations. At least thirty five years old, forty years old, and it's still functioning. I'm I'm still you know been attending for you know twenty five years, and it's it's volunteer driven. So you know and and it's no membership fee. And so so so. Standards become important because uh, it allows businesses to, f to flourish, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, the technology serves the community, it serves the business. And, you, and as a business, you're trying to reduce costs. And, and this is real. So, so I'm, I'm an advisor for a startup that's basically um, trying to do stable coins. And they were, you know doing things on Ethereum. And as you all know, the, the, the gas costs on Ethereum became just too expensive and they had to move, right? And so it was it was difficult because it's a small startup. Suddenly they have to move all the assets from one blockchain network to another, almost like manually, right? And so, you know, but what if you had standards that allow assets to traverse across blockchain networks, just like, like packets today, you know, in the web two, uh, you know, so, so, uh, w when you use Zoom or, or Netflix, your, your packets are traversing multiple private networks. I have to explain to the students also here that there is no public internet. The internet is a is a is a collection, a sequential collection of private ISP networks. So in here in New England and probably the same in, in Melbourne, you have cable providers. That's a private network. It's a private corporation. Great. <laughs> and and so between 
you know, me and maybe, you know, the, the stream, uh, streaming video company in San Francisco, I'm probably hopping through uh, two or three or four private networks. All right. And, and my connection is oblivious to this. In fact, this is the, 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 the internet is so successful. It gives the, the impression that it's a, it's a, it's a public, you know, seamless, you know, uh, network when in fact it's not. And, and for, for, uh, that to happen, there is these standards that, that regulate packet delivery between these private networks. Right. And, 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 and so on. So the, so the, just to give you a rough count, the ETF as an organization for the past again, 40 years, they've produced over 8,000 RFCs over 8,000 standard written documents. It has to be written <laughs> and it has to be implementable by uh, engineers. So, so one of the sort of unwritten rules in the ITF is if you want your you know, specification and working group to reach standard, you have to have at least two open source implementations of that spec, right? So, so standards and open source go together. The open source code proves that the standard works. And, and, you know, bare bones, you know, kind of set up. And so that's, you know, standards also provides opportunity for businesses to be creative at the higher level. So right now, everybody's fussing about layer L1, layer one, layer two blockchains, right? You, you guys know what I'm, you know, referring to when I say layer one blockchain. And I, and I keep saying, let's just, just get, get to the point where layer one interoperability standards are produced so that you can be creative in the higher level, because the value is always at the higher level of the stack. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we're just learning now that um, the financial system has always been a, a, a it's very similar. You, I mean, the banking networks and payments networks were always sort of private networks of agreements that got stitched together into national payments networks and then international ones. And, um, you know, they've we've only just realized just how horribly that all worked because it, because it lacked, because of just how difficult the interoperability was to build into that. But at the same time, this notion of, of seeing it through, it's just information passing through networks. And if we can sort of rethink sort of global payments networks and asset um, systems as and just think of them as, as, you know, in the same way that you know, the internet was built up in that, in that same way. Um, there's an enormous possibility to to, you know, to to re-engineer a global financial system of not just right. not just money and payments, but also assets, um, credit contracts, debt contracts, just just any any agreements that can be made, you know, cooperative agreements between people anywhere. And when you sort of see that, it becomes you know it's fundamentally the, the, the you know the global financial re-engineering challenge right now is this identity problem. Who am I contracting with, or who am I paying? I need to know. You know, I need to have trust in in the counterparty to identify so identity, and then standards integration, technical standards, but these right. technical standards are being built up. And right. I think, I mean, that was sort of it's one of these realizations I've only had in you know um, in the past few years of just how similar those challenge those those you know, that engineering challenge is, um, and. The, yeah, that it's yeah. been solved and, and, so much better. So, on, on the, yeah. so pushing for pushing forward again this data copy. So 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 in the traditional banking case, when I want to do a wire transfer to Kelsey in Melbourne, I will go down to my 
Bank of America here and using the correspondent banking network, it wires money to, 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 the, to Kelsey's bank in, in Melbourne. Now, there might be multiple intermediary you know, banks in between, but, but the point here is that my bank here is standing in the stead of me in dealing with another bank. So, so could my data co-op as an organization, whether it's on DAO or not, stand on behalf of me, in the stead of me, when it communicates attributes about me for this you know, global um, uh, blockchain uh, transaction that require identity? Because as, as, the, as the network grows, identity and identity verification and verifiable attributes that people here talk about, verifiable credential, verifiable attributes become you know, super important. Thomas, one thing I was listening to you speak about, um, actually on a previous podcast you've been on, was how you kind of saw the Bitcoin white paper when it was released and thought, no, yeah, that that sounds nice in theory. And it was actually the release of uh, Ethereum and the, the possibilities that smart contracts opened up that really piqued your attention. Um, and you've expressed interest in uh, this idea of tokenizing assets or asset tokenization, which which Jason is sort of invoking in his Sure. His model <laughs> yes. digital economy. Yes. So what are some of the possibilities uh, with asset tokenization that you're excited about? Sure. So 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 you you you, you probably were aware of this whole um, artwork, was it the, the Beeple NFT, right? You you saw you saw how crazy that was. And and you know, again the the the, the crypto community has a tendency to how do I this, say this politely, you know, beat up on a, a great concept after it goes through that machinery, gets so devalued that, that people just get turned off. And, and we've been saying that, you know, at MIT, hang on a second, really, there's a huge, you know, asset pool of physical assets in the real world that could be represented by a token, uh, you know, a digital representation on a shared ledger. Let's put it that way. It doesn't have to be an ERC format, Whatever it is, and so how do you how do you make that work, right? In, in this global economy, and this is where standards comes in, right? and this is why it's it's great to see things like the ERC, you know, seven thirty one being written. I can download it and read it. <laughs> you know, that's a form of standard standardization, but it requires more, right, Jason? So so we, you know we've been wondering about well, what is the definition of a digital asset, and who has the authority to pronounce that decision? Right, and the the you know, when 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 I'm talking to the students at MIT, I, I use this um, mutual funds example. So a financial institution in down downtown New York, who's registered as a business, they come up with a new fund, uh, you know, basically shares where people can buy fund, you know, and but you have to define what the fund is and fund is, and so they send out these prospectus booklets, you know, and the prospectus booklets will say. You know the the fund is going to be composed of you know fifty percent blue blue stock chips whatever it is you know but that's a definition and it's issued by a registered business and they take on liability in defining this now a fund based on its composition can succeed or fail that's the whole point of you know fund managers and that's why fund managers make a a bucket load of you know money <laughs> they're being paid to be to be experts here so 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 Jason. One of the things that that the whole crypto industry needs to work on is how do you standardize asset definitions and the asset 
definition ecosystem, right? And this is this is where you know this is a, this is a place where the crypto industry could engage the government, such as the SEC and FinCEN, in a positive way, as opposed to just you know making sniping remarks back and forth, right? So so sit down with the SEC and say, okay, yes, I want my my physical, I want I want my you know million dollar gold bars in in my bank to be tokenized right you know what what legal mechanisms could be could we bring in and this brings in interesting things Kelsey such as can you use a DAO for arbitration so this is a topic that's that's come up in our group is going forward when you have a DAO can you use almost like a virtual arbitration system that's may perhaps also a DAO where when things don't work out, right? That you know I'm I'm buying and selling with with uh, Jason, uh, you know, on the blockchain, and and then the contract is not you know fulfilled. Where do I go? Is there some kind of an online mechanism like another DAO that could help us solve that? But but you know b- back back to this you know tokenizing assets. I think that's the future. I think that's you know we're seeing this in artwork, right? People are trying to you know. Uh, uh, create digital-only artwork, but also importantly, um, you know, if you have a two hundred million dollar Picasso painting, right? Like, uh, <laughs> how how do you digitally represent that such that you know you can buy shares of it and so? But what's what be, before the blockchain comes in? What's the you know asset issuance, asset definition ecosystem that needs to be developed? Yeah, I really like that that reframing or that that conception of that the the task at the moment is not sort of a regulation or re re regulation or deregulation sort of adversarial story. It's basically a standardization problem, standardization across know it things that are familiar and new things, and that process is um, difficult. It requires consensus. It requires a community of people with expertise to come together and reach agreement about just what is this thing we're 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 looking at here and yeah to think of that process as as the 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 yeah the 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 challenge that like that's the hard thing that we need to be able to do well in, in order to, to to move forward here and and um yeah i, I yeah i i think that's a that's a really um, insightful way to think about it yeah, and actually, um, just to point out, there's some really interesting projects that um, Jason and I are doing some work with around um, the use of open source microchips, and I've written about this and the metaverse and that kind of, yeah. you know, creating standards which you can attach to physical goods and then port, you know, right. from physical to yeah. digital and back again. Um, Thomas, this has been such a wide-ranging and really thought-provoking discussion. Um, I think, you know, in that broad bucket of the field that you're kind of pioneering of computational social science um you're you're one of the most quotable people that we've had on the podcast and and one of the quotes that um, is my takeaway from the conversation is at the end of the day it's about human beings it's about societies it's about communities it's not about the technology and so as an ethnographer that's obviously music to my ears um, and gives me plenty more um, to study in this respect um, so as a closing comment, uh, where can people find you and, and follow your, your most recent work? Oh, goodness. I, I would uh, recommend our uh, group website, which is uh, connection.mit.edu, because that's where we announce 
interesting projects, you know, uh, our events, you know, we do a, a Davos uh, event, you know, every January, um, except excepting for the COVID season, uh, new papers, student projects, um, and, and, you know, encourage people to go there um, uh, and just see, see the news there and, and see, you know, um, we, we have uh, quite a large, you know, number of, of fellows, uh, you know, in our, in our, in our group and, and they're all busy doing interesting things. And sometimes even, in fact, I, I find it <laughs> overwhelming just, just to keep track of what these people are doing, but, but that's, that's probably the easiest place, you know, to go, to go to um, uh, Kelsey. Wonderful. So thank you so much to our special guests for this podcast episode, Dr. Thomas Harjano, as well as distinguished professor Jason Potts. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including links to further research at rmitblockchain.io.